Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Intercooler podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 191 of the Intercooler podcast with me, Dan Prosser, Andrew Frankel, my co-host, and a guest this week, Richard Bremner, a car journalist, one of our contributors at the Intercooler. Um, And this week we're talking about the decline and collapse of British Leyland, um, formerly British Motor Corporation, which became Rover Group, MG Rover. It's all very complicated, but we try to tell the full story of it, um, which probably explains why this is one of the longest podcast episodes we've ever done. Um, so it's a bit of a bumper episode, which is good actually, because we're not around next week. We're taking a week off for Christmas. Um, so this is a bit of a, an extended episode to make up for it, I suppose. So I hope you enjoy listening. Um, before we get started, I'm just going to remind you all that this Christmas, you can give the petrol head in your life a subscription to the intercooler as a gift. Just head to the-intercooler.com, find gifts, and you'll see all our gifting options there. They start at just £35.99. You can download a digital gift voucher immediately and share it however you like with the recipient. Um, It's a really easy thing to do. If you're up against it, if you haven't managed to get out to the shops, you can just head to our website, buy a gift, download the voucher immediately, um, and that person is then taken care of. So yeah, head to the-intercooler.com and find the gifts page. Uh, thank you for doing that and enjoy the episode. Richard Bremner, we're delighted to have you on the podcast this week. You are one of our newest contributors as a writer. So to get you on the podcast, well, it seems to make sense. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Pleasure. So for those who don't know Richard, um, I've just been reading your biography on the Intercooler website. And I can see that you've been writing about cars for almost 40 years. Hard to believe. Um, <laughs> former former editor of Car. Yeah. You've worked for the biggest magazines and newspapers. Um, and now you're writing for us. 
But actually, for the, the sake of this conversation, we're talking about British Leyland and its decline. Um, more importantly, you used to work at BL or Austin Rover, as it was then. Um, just very briefly, can you tell us what you were doing when you were working there? How long for? Yeah, uh, so um, I joined as a, an apprentice and a, an undergraduate in 1976. Um, when uh, and I was sponsored on a business studies course, uh, which is why I'm a multimillionaire now. Um, <laughs> and um, it actually was a very good course. And I, I wanted to work with cars, and I thought I would apply to a car company or car companies. And very sensibly, Ford rejected me along with Vauxhall, but BL were prepared to back me, as it were. And um, which was great because that was the company I actually wanted to work for because I felt that they made much the most interesting cars of what was then the big four, who were Vauxhall, Ford and Chrysler, mm. oh, completely forgotten now, almost, which was the Roots Group, Hillman, Singer, Humber, I mean, yeah, all in the distant past. So, um, uh, and basically I, I, I was a marketing and sales and marketing um specialist and my first job once I graduated was in long-range forecasting so by the time I'd finished the course it was we were coming to the launch of the metro and forecasting sales of that mainly in mainland Europe and, and the UK along with all the other models but the metro is the the big hope back then uh, but what I really wanted to do was work in product planning um, mm. The reason for that was because I wanted to get as close as I possibly could to the creation of cars, and that was as far as I would be able to go because I could neither draw nor engineer, being utterly hopeless <laughs> at maths. So that the closest I could get to being able to do any damage was to get to product planning. So after forecasting, which I must say I enjoyed greatly, I moved to product marketing, which was where we would work out what the specs were in terms of equipment and models, um, model derivative names and so on. Uh, in this case, I was doing the Metro Rover 200 um, Mini at one point, uh, trying to come up with a spec for the Mini City, incidentally, which was a stripped out version. It was extremely difficult to find anything to strip from it. <laughs> um, but my boss and I decided that the passenger no longer needed a sun visor and the heated rear window was um, a, a frippery in a country known for being sunny all the time. <laughs> so anyway, I digress. So and then I switched to journalism, having seen a, a, a job advertised on Motor Magazine. I didn't get it straight away. It took me three attempts, but eventually... I made the switch with, with mixed feelings. I really enjoyed my time at mm. BL. Um, and had I stayed, who knows what would have happened in, given what we're about to talk about. So, so Richard, you were there from 76 to, but when did, you, when did you actually leave? I left at the beginning of 1984. Um, just Gosh, to, you were there quite a long So, I mean, even in that time, I mean, was the writing on the wall? Could you see, I mean, the the decline we're going to go on to talk about must have been evident to you at the coalface at the time. 
Well, uh, yes and no. In the, I mean, before the Metro was launched, things were looking pretty dire, not just in terms of product. I mean, but speaking of which, you, you know, the two best-selling models with the Allegro Marina, which considering <laughs> their reputations actually sold in the UK pretty well. I mean, the Marina was regularly in the top five and often the Allegro as well. So, um, you know, these things did sell in, in big numbers. Um, but they were, by 1979, the year before the Metro, I mean, the Marina was eight years old and the Allegro was six. And they weren't very competitive. Well, they weren't competitive at all, particularly when they were launched. So it was amazing that they had managed to continue for that long. Um, and then there were all the industrial problems, which we'll come to, you know, endless strikes and the, yeah. the battle to uh, in the end gain the upper hand over the unions. Um, so... But was it looking like the writing was on the wall then? No, not necessarily. And in fact, the Metro okay. was an immense success. It was. Uh, it was. For a yeah, while. I remember that. And we started to feel a lot more optimistic, um, less so on the day when somebody brought to the office that I worked in when I was in forecasting a set of images of the styling department's full-size model of the Maestro. And our or LC10, LM10 as it was codenamed, and um, I'll never forget this. This M brown envelope came round. It was sort of passed solemnly from person to person, and we each took out this set of pictures and looked at the maestro. And um, I think our uh, clouds sank somewhat. Really, it was just not as appealing as the metro was in its day what, mm. what, far from hopeless far from hopeless but um it didn't look like the winner that the metro turned out to be but okay, even so then, you know, let, yeah. let me let me jump in here because as i think richard has demonstrated already he's an authority on this matter that, he yes. knows as probably andrew knows as much about cars as anyone you've come across is that fair enough uh, I, I, I think I, I think record saying that Richard's almost certainly forgotten more about cars than yeah. I will ever know. So, and particularly the the British um, car industry, yeah. BL. Um, so, Richard is extremely well informed on this. Now, before we get get stuck in, I just want to sort of set out the terms of reference here because we've called this the decline of British Leyland, but frankly. I'm not entirely sure what British Leyland means. I'm, I think of that whole group. And broadly, we're talking about Britain's mass market car manufacturer. I still think of it as MG Rover because that's what it was when I was a teenager. Actually, it was only MG Rover for a few years, the final few years, up until the whole group collapsed in April 2005. But it's, it's, it can be a very thorny tangle, this company, because it had so many different names. There were so many different owners, the state at one point. There were so many marks underneath the umbrella. Um, and we, we go from British Motor Corporation to British Leyland to Austin Rover Group to Rover Group to MG Rover. And there are other marks involved. MG and Rover and Land Rover and Mini, even Jaguar, Triumph, Riley, Austin, Morris. It, it can be a total 
Well, it can be a mess, Morass. actually. Yes. Yes. Mm. But we're, as I said earlier, we're basically discussing Britain's only mass market car manufacturer. Is that yeah. a sort of fair enough umbrella catch-all reference for, for this? It, it is, except bear in mind that uh, it, it would be Britain's only wholly owned, UK owned okay. mass yeah. manufacturer because Ford, Vauxhall and Chrysler all sure. had, particularly Ford, big market shares and they all had factories in the UK, but yes, equally but they, the, but they, they were weren't. all American owned. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's fine. So, I mean, if we continue through this episode calling it British Leyland or BL, um, we're talking still about the, um, you know, the versions of that company that followed. It's all the same. Um, so uh, hopefully we've sort of set that out. Now, where, how far back do we need to go? I mean, what were the origins of the company that ultimately became and declined and failed as MG Rover? How far back do we go, Richard? Well, at the risk of sending our listeners to sleep, on our keep <laughs> this bit brief, we need to go back to 1952. And that is when two of the biggest car companies in the UK merged, Austin and Morris. I mean, they were massive back then. Um, but against the will, really, of many of the two, the people who worked for each of those companies. So what ensued was effectively a quiet but very destructive internecine war between those who worked for Austin and those who worked for Morris. Um, and what was the, that company called once it had merged? Uh, BMC, British Motor right. Corporation. Okay, so that's kind of where it starts. Yes, and um, they did rationalise their products to some degree because uh, they were very disparate um, range of products, although they, they, they were both in exactly the same market, so they were competing directly with one another. So you could argue, did it make sense in some ways? But anyway, um, they, they got off to a reasonable start in terms of product rationalisation, sort of sharing engines and so on, and the product plans which eventually led to the term badge engineering, uh, eventually brought about things like the Austin Cambridge, which was then av available in Austin, Morris, Woolsey, Riley and MG forms and was essentially the same car. Um, not just so all so all those other brands they they were they already part of the group or had they come well, to join yeah, it? So or sorry, those other parts those brands mentioned. So Morris. Um, came under what was known as the Nuffield Group. Um, the, uh, incidentally, that Nuffield is the same as Nuffield Health, which survives yeah. to this day and was established by William Morris, the founder of Morris. Yeah. Um, he's, in real terms, one of the greatest philanthropists ever. <laughs> um, uh, so, yes, Nuffield included uh, Woolsey, Riley, um, Morris, MG, and Nuffield Tractors, who once were quite big. Um, so all those came within the BMC umbrella. Austin, I can't remember. I don't think they... They had Vanden Plas, I think, which was a coach builder, although the name became um, uh, used as a, as, a, as a trim level eventually. Um, anyway... Uh, uh, Leonard Lord, who was the boss of Austin and an ex-employee of William Morris's, 
and William Morris didn't get on because there was a massive falling out when Lord worked for Morris, having basically saved the company. And that acrimonious split basically uh, flavoured the the uh, entire merger of Austin and Morris. So they had separate dealer networks. They had two styling studios. They had two engineering departments. So the 1962 Morris 1100, which became Britain's best-selling car for a decade, for example, uh, was largely engineered at Cowley, not Longbridge, um, because, that, you know, they still had the full facility developed to develop a new car there. Um, so that there you have, and those those were the volume manufacturers. They they produced by far the greatest number of cars within what would become British Leyland. But they also were the most troubled elements of the organisation. And then, and, and, w- and were they exporting lots of cars? Well. Um, that you, you that's a very, very interesting point they were but not as many as they could have been and the reason for that is that britain was not in the european economic community what we now know as the eu uh with the result that there were swinging tariffs mm. that differed by european country uh on british cars um so for example in italy the tariff on a mini was 31% so wow. you can imagine that on a budget car, yeah. trying to compete with a Fiat 600, you've got no chance. And that, in fact, is how the Italian company Innocenti came to be building BMC cars under license. Because uh, it got they, around the tariff. Yeah, it got around the tariff, but also Innocenti could see that at, at that point, the Morris 1100 was the most advanced small family car in the world. Is, is that the car that Basil Fawlty attacked with a tree? Indeed it is, the estate version. Excellent, right. Yes. <laughs> Good, Perhaps thank you for so long day. But nevertheless, yes. it, as I say, that was a, a massive seller in the UK and we ought to have been in mainland Europe, but because we weren't in the EEC, sales were very limited. And this um, is because it, Italy, you know, the home of the small car, didn't want this rather... Um, clever, innovative uh, upstart from over there coming and knocking sales out from underneath Fiat's feet? Well, probably, although I, I think it was a much broader you know, set of tariffs. It wasn't tariffs on cars, it was tariffs on everything, I think, oh, because okay. we, we weren't in the EEC. And, <coughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, it limited sales in France and Germany, and whereas Switzerland, which wasn't in the EEC, uh, BMC and other British brands actually did a lot better and for many, many years, sort of until, you know, we were in our careers, Andrew, um, Switzerland was always quite a good buyer of British cars because they'd had a, a greater presence there in the 60s. Um, so, yes, but despite, uh, but there were a lot of experts, exports down to, um, uh, you know, Commonwealth countries, former British Empire yeah. companies um, that sort of eased BMC's opportunity to sell cars completely unsuitable for uh, overseas hot territories. Mm. Uh, uh, There were exceptions. So, I mean, in Sri Lanka, then Ceylon, the Morris Minor was hugely popular. Yeah. And in fact, uh, maybe there still is, but at one time there was a huge cottage industry making Mm. what were really patterned parts for those cars. 
Um, so there were pockets of success, and not, and also in America. So um, I was going to say, we, we, they Britain, did sell to North America. We did. And in fact, briefly after World War II, Britain was the biggest foreign Im or, uh, exporter of cars to the US. Uh, not just BMC, but the, the Hillman Minx for a short time was the best-selling imported car in the States until they discovered... Wow the truth <laughs> I just can't imagine it just can't imagine it no uh, but where where Britain really had a very long running success was with sports cars um, and that kicked off because uh, quite a lot of uh, American soldiers stationed in Britain and Europe during World War II learnt about MGs and mm. brought MGs back to the States and that sort of fired off the start of importing them in in very big numbers and so mg triumph jaguar uh, all had terrific success for a while in the states with sports cars um so yes there were big successes mm. but uh by the time we got to the early 60s when the mini had been launched uh, got off to a shaky start, but then really... And that, that, was, that was launched as both a Morris... Was it a Morris Mini Minor? Morris and an Austin Mini Minor 7? and the Austin 7. It, was called, it wasn't called Mini in the Austin version because Austin had had an absolutely landmark success with the original Austin 7, which yeah. saved the company uh, and sold in the tens of thousands and was made under license by, ironically, by BMW yeah. in Germany yeah. and <coughs> The first BMWs were Austins, weren't they? They were, yeah, yeah. the Austin Dixie. Exactly. Um, anyway, um, so they wanted to reference the heritage, mm. and rightly so, with that car, but of course eventually the Mini rapidly developed its own brand if you like and they didn't need to reference the austin 7 anymore um so the mini which came out in 59 was rapidly followed up by the 1100 in 1962 which is a bigger version of the same thing but with fluid suspension and as i mentioned earlier the most advanced small family car in 1962 it was a bit like when the ford focus was launched in 1998 it, wow. it was even more of a leap forward than so that. So completely game-changing. Because yes. I mean, it's interesting, that isn't it? Because the Mini has um, this reputation, does it, of being a revolution, um, even though the Fiat 500 predates it. And yet, I don't think people. I mean, even I'm, I'm not aware that the Morris 1100 was as big a deal in 1962 as the Mini had been in '59. Well, it, in one sense, it wasn't because it was. You know, it had many of the Mini's features: a transverse sure. engine, gears in the sump, extraordinary packaging. Um, yeah. The thing that it had that was novel that the Mini didn't have was hydroelastic suspension, which used a mixture of rubber and fluid. A very clever system. Um, to provide a better ride, um, I mean, it may you know it was a it, it wasn't as sophisticated as Citroen's hydropneumatic system, but that needed a pump and was vastly more expensive to make. Uh, this did, let's say, seventy five percent of what the Citroen system could do for probably a half or a third of of the money, uh, perhaps I'm guessing. Um, so yes, the Morris 1100 
would be with one uh, uh, basically the best-selling car in the UK for 10 years almost on the trot there was one year when the Cortina beat it um, so base that car and the mini utterly popularized front-wheel drive in the UK yep. um, and to some extent did in Europe if not <clears throat> directly by BMC selling cars in Europe but by having but causing people like Fiat in particular and Renault to start to switch to front-wheel drive uh, and Peugeot they were early adopters yeah. too so, um, so this at this time BMC really was a world leader particularly in uh, that part doubt, of the market uh, it was profitable in the early 60s and mm. also with the success of the Mini Cooper as a competition car yeah. I mean y- you cannot imagine the transformation in the image of company making dour worthy dull saloons mm. austins and morrises austin 10s and 16s and you know perfectly respectable quite well made cars but terribly unexciting for the timid family man almost or the conservative small c family man <coughs> i should say yeah and then to suddenly be a maker of world-beating cars and to their great credit um, the management were already realizing in the early 50s uh, late 50s that they were going to struggle to compete with Ford who weren't that far behind them in the UK and market share but obviously had the might of the Ford Motor Company behind them and so they thought well what we need to do is be technically advanced uh, in order to give people a reason to pay slightly more for an Austin or Morris product. Their big mistake was having actually made those vehicles, they failed to pr- price them properly. So, I mean, it, it's very f- famous, this, but when the Mini came out, Ford, it was barely any more money than the Ford Popular, which was a, basically almost a pre-war design, incredibly crude, upright car with mud guards and running boards mm. and a single wiper i mean a hopeless vehicle in many ways and the mini was not much more money than that ford couldn't believe the price it was being sold for and they bought one took it apart costed it and was and were completely convinced that bmc were making a loss and in the spirit of generosity sent their report to BMC, not to gloat or anything, simply to say, you know, we're just telling you that you cannot be making money on this car. You need to put the price up. You're going to go bust otherwise. And and such was the arrogance of the, the bosses that they completely dismissed it. But in fact, there lay one of the root causes of the fact that Austin Morris after about 1966, rapidly sailed into red ink and growing losses. And that is that they they were terrible at costing their products. They didn't actually know how much it cost to make a Mini or an 1100. And that cost varied depending wow. on which plant it was made we, in. We, we, wow. we've, se- we've seen this in car companies in the past. I mean, yeah, memorably, Porsche in the mid 1990s when they got the japanese exactly. consultants in porsche didn't know how much it was co- it was costing them to make their cars um and they got into alls and it very nearly cost them their their independence didn't it it did uh, yeah i mean yeah. uh yes it were it not for those ex-toyota consultants um 
telling them to do things like cut down the racking or, uh, for their parts inventory so that they had didn't have thousands and thousands of pounds worth of parts in stock for the assembly line. I mean, many other, uh, basically apl applying the Toyota manufacturing system to, to, to Porsche. I mean, boy, could BL have done with that. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, so, so had it during this, you know, we sort of gone from the, the very start of the 952 and we're now sort of in the mid 60s. Had other, had the other brands, had any more brands had Triumph come on board or Jaguar or Land Rover or any of that yeah, lot yet? It's a good, a very good point. So while Austin and Morris are doing their thing, um, the British industry in general is each company is realizing that they're, they're too small to compete on their own. And so I'm, I'm including Rover, who at that point were independent, and Jaguar, Daimler. Um, Triumph, meanwhile, had been bought in the very early 60s or late 50s, I think, by Leyland, Truck, Leyland Trucks, which was um, uh, okay. not a huge company, but a maker of. Uh, high-end or uh, heavy-duty trucks and buses and was really quite profitable. But in the motor industry terms, Leyland with Triumph was a small fry. And, and, and where had the Leyland name come from originally? The, the town of Leyland okay. uh, in, near Preston. And, um, and that's where the truck company started up, was it? I believe so, yeah. Okay, I, okay. I, I, I thought I'm, so. I'm on dicey territory here. Um, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. Yeah. But nevertheless, it was uh, quite a significant business. And also, and this is long forgotten now, Austin and Morris made not just vans, but lorries, smaller lorries as well, as did Bedford, which was part of Vauxhall. And, you know, British trucks, uh, you know, were, were exported all over the world. And um, another <laughs> industry that we've completely lost, um, or almost completely. Um, so... Uh, in fact, Austin and Morris or BMC were in talks with Leyland Stroke Triumph in the early 60s when they were both profitable and they had very amicable talks around the idea of merging because they both knew that they were too small. So the British Leyland idea didn't suddenly appear in 1968. There were the beginnings of a coalescing of a great chunk of the British car industry from the early 60s. Um, but because both companies were profitable, they didn't feel the need was pressing. And the problem they had was, and I don't understand the minutiae of this, but the way the shares were viewed on the stock exchange for Leyland versus BMC was so different. One was seen as providing income and the other yield i don't really understand but it made the two companies very difficult to join together for their shareholders um so it didn't happen and then when the talks resumed uh, in the mid 60s uh the boot was more on leyland's foot in terms of power whereas in the early 60s bmc held all the cards they were the dominant people in the room um and in the meantime uh, I don't quite know why this was, except that they were the main customer for them. But Press Steel Fisher, which made body shells for 
uh, not just BMC, but Jaguar, Rolls-Royce. Yeah, Bentley, Roots yeah, Group. certainly. Mm. Even, uh, uh, they'd even in the past made panels for Alfa Romeo and Renault, uh, among others. Um, very big company. Um, were bought by BMC, which is an odd thing to do in a way, to buy one of your major suppliers when they're supplying your rivals. They, were, they tried to assure their rivals that, you know, they didn't need to worry there would be Chinese walls, but of course no one believed that. So the answer for people like Jaguar, who couldn't afford to set up their own press shops in order to be independent, was to join BMC. So William Lyons decided that Jaguar, well, that, that they became part of the BMC empire. So for a very short time, BMC changed its name to British Motor Holdings so that Jaguar and Daimler and Dennis Trucks, yet another forgotten Gillis, truck yeah. maker, which uh, Lyons owned, um, were in, joined BMC as well. And what, what year would that have been? I think it was late 66 or 67. Okay, so the XJ6 would have been well under development by then. Oh, yes. And when it was launched, it was a BL loosely a a BL product, and it was but, so it was launched in '68. What was BMLC? Did I did I dream that? Was there a no, BMLC? BLMC, British Lane and Motor Corporation. That was what was formed in 1968. So, uh, okay. To to try and give some understanding of all the names, Dan, that you mentioned, mm. uh, Austin Rover and so on. So, I mean, it became <clears> a sort of sick running joke, really, throughout the, the declining life of this outfit that every so often there would be a name change um, when there was a new management broom or a, a fresh start. So we went from the British Leyland Motor Corporation to BL Cars to Austin Rover Group. Uh, I mean, I can't even remember myself, and I'm, I was an employee, but uh, and then Rover Group and, you know, all sorts of, different names as the whole business gradually contracted as bits of it had to close or were sold off. I mean, going back to 68, so what caused, in the end, British Motor Holdings and Leyland to come together um, in 1968? Well, again, this fear of a lack of size limiting the ability of Britain to compete in the global motor industry. So the merger was sort of encouraged by the Labour government. Um, and But without any real understanding of the difficulties of almost throwing into an enormous bin these companies who nominally did the same thing, i.e. make cars mm. or bits of cars, um, and expect them then not to all be able to achieve economies of scale or a rationality or a rational plan, really. It was an so enormous task. I mean, I believe there were over 90 factories, a, a quarter of a million people, um, endless <laughs> different unions representing different people. I mean... In fact, in my notes for this, which I'm busy not looking at now, I wrote down that it was almost more difficult than running a country. Um, because mm. imagine all the 
factions that you have, yes. people defending their own territory, people thinking interests. this is my yeah. chance to build my territory. Um, mm. I mean, just endless. And then um, one thing we haven't mentioned at all yet, which is absolutely fundamental to the understanding of what happened and, and the decline, is industrial relations or the lack of them. So strikes was what Britain <coughs> became known for yeah. in the late 60s and 70s, not just in the car industry, but the coal industry, steel, shipbuilding, you name it. I mean, even grave diggers went on strike during the three-day week in 1974. Yeah. Um, when I had a baths by candlelight, I thought you probably don't want to think about, but <laughs> <laughs> because there was no electricity, it was rationed. Anyway, um, yes, so I, as an aside, uh, about 10 years ago, I was asked by BMW if I could help them put together a history of the Cowley or BMW Oxford factory, as it's now known, which had turned 100 years old and, and they just wanted to celebrate it really they didn't want to they just wanted the history written in short form anyway in the process of writing this uh i was shown some uh diaries with sort of minutes of meetings held at cowley in the very early 1960s and one of the concerns that repeatedly comes up in these minutes is the fact that there are communist shop stewards and uh, uh, sort of politically motivated people joining the company in order to, well, probably to disrupt it because they were trying to um, uh, gain control of the means of production, as Marx called mm. it. Mm. And apparently at one time there were endless var variations of communist flavour you know, Trotskyists and I don't know what else within yeah. the Cowley plant. I mean, it, and it became increasingly ungovernable, but it w wasn't just there. I mean, uh, everywhere, Longbridge, the Speak plant that Triumph had opened uh, under government encouragement, spoke stroke duress um, in Liverpool, was appalling industrial relations. Um, they just didn't want to work at all. And pretty much ran the place rather than the management. Um, okay. So you're trying to reorganise a company and return it to profit when mm. you've got a unions and workforce who not universally don't want to work, not at all, but there were factions there who just made it incredibly difficult to, to, to run consistently. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Richard, can we, can we um, just briefly, not, if we sort of take 1968 as a, as a screenshot, what, what, what I struggle to understand, if I think of the sort of cars that were being made by those companies at the time, yes. you know, Jaguar had the E-Type and the XJ6, which was a world beater, was coming. Land Rover obviously had the Land Rover and the Range Rover was just um, around the corner at the time. Triumph had some pretty good stuff. Uh, Mini still had... Uh, the Mini going great guns for them. I mean, there was just so much, you know, and, and, and actually I've, I've barely touched the surface. There was so much good stuff around at the time. You know, there was the P6 Rover, which was, you know, fantastic in its day. And you think that you would have the bare bones of something quite extraordinary there. Um, you know, a, a whole tranche of world-beating product. And from there to, well, you know, in a decade... What got squandered? It's, it is quite extraordinary, isn't it? It is. So you're absolutely right. Even though many of these cars were beginning to age uh, in 1968, um, and there were some that you know well past their sell by date. But but really, it, I mean, as a portfolio of products, it, yes, absolutely extraordinary. Um, uh, you know, some groundbreaking cars in, in every segment almost. And also, just as an aside, I mean, the truck and bus business was uh, big and successful. They made everything in within British Leyland from steamrollers to re- industrial refrigerators. To, I mean, it was just unbelievable the extent of what, what was built. But the problem was they had no money and profits were never enough or weren't there at all and they were buffeted by as everyone is by outside forces so for example in 1972 British Leyland made a profit wasn't vast but it was reasonable and then came in 1973 the Yom Kippur war which triggered the oil crisis and so Basically, the OPEC countries massively reduced the amount of oil they were producing petrol prices went up significantly and so the UK car market massively contracted and in particular cars like E-types, XJs, anything with a big engine became really difficult to sell. So just as one example, the last 50 E-types built in 1975, it was a limited edition run, each with a plaque of 50 cars, took them absolutely ages to sell those. I mean, it's impossible to imagine now the last 50 e-types they'd be gone mm. you know the moment the story was announced on the web but but, but, but 
Yeah. So all, all external factors aside, and I, I take what you say on, on that point, um, I think the sort of popular thought of Leyland and its decline is it's all about you know, unions and communism and, you know, but for that, the company. But in fact, from what you're saying, I think it was being murdered from both ends, wasn't it? Because it was also a fantastically incompetently run company. You know, you've got these these car companies under the same umbrella um, being built on an, uneco on an uneconomic basis to standards of quality control that just weren't good enough. And so, is it fair to say the management were as much um, to blame for the downfall as, 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 as the unions? It, it is in many ways. Um, I'll tell you one of the things that surprised me when I, in my, you know, I was barely, you know, I was a teenager when I joined, but when I started working full time there and was slightly more mature, I. But in my utter naivety, I, I thought, God, there are lots of, sounds so patronising, but really intelligent people here. How, how is it that, um, you know, all the blunders that appear to have been made get made? And then when you're inside the company, you start to understand why things are done the way they are. And I'll give you one example. Innocenti, as I mentioned before, is a, an Italian... It eventually became a subsidiary rather than a, simply a, a third-party producer of BMC products. And they recognised that they were they needed new product. There was an absolute starvation of new Austin and Morris products for lack of money. So they developed their own new version of the Mini, the Bertoni-designed Innocenti Mini, which was a sort of boxy, uh, re really quite attractive, boxy little hatchback that came out, I think, in 1974 or 5. And really up-to-date styling, but mini mechanicals carried over, so all the pros and cons that that means, in particular the terrible ride. However, lots of people would say, why on earth, you haven't got a hatchback in the range, the Renault 5 and the Fiat 127 are blazing a trail with with um, super minis, British Leyland, the inventor of small, well, re-inventor of small cars, hasn't got one. Why don't you bring over the Innocenti Mini? And when I got inside the company, I discovered that that had, that had of course, been looked at, but the costs of doing it, it, it simply wouldn't have been profitable for all kinds of reasons I won't bore you with. It just made no sense. So, uh, but, you know, that the information that it made no sense never got out to the wider world. So there were lots of uh, decisions that might have seemed uh, bafflingly stupid on the outside, mm -hmm. but were less so from the inside. <clears throat> However, that isn't to exonerate them. They made many mistakes, but then so do all car companies. Um, the key problem was simply a lack of resource, uh, which led in 19 well in fact along with the fuel crisis and then the lack of profits um in 1974 lord stokes or donald stokes as he was then who was the boss of british leyland um had w was advised by the city who were the investors in uh, british leyland which was then a fully publicly you know a listed company on the stock exchange um the banks were getting nervous and they said you should go to the government and try to get some funding. So Stokes went to Tony Benn, 
in the Labour Party who uh, uh, understood the problem. I mean, he was quite, to say the least, left-leaning and, you know, was not averse to nationalising things and that's essentially what happened. So British Lane was nationalised, wasn't quite wholly owned by the government. I think it was 95%. Although, as an aside, I remember, uh, again, when I was an apprentice, a colleague uh, who had to go and... He was selling to fleets and he went to... um, I don't know, British Gas or somewhere to try and sell um, fields full of marina, marinas and vans and what have you, and walked in and this uh, Scottish fleet buyer said to him, I own 95% of your blood. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, his opening line to this guy. Um, but yes, the government uh, basically then had a major hand in how it was run, and they commissioned a... What, what, what was the benefit for the government? Was it, was it just that the company was control? too big to fail and exactly. so the government couldn't yeah, let a, a, it? As mentioned earlier, it was just too big to fail. Uh, it was, a, uh, well, a, by then, a million employees or thereabouts, and that, that was direct employees. Mm. Then you've got all the indirects, you know, the shopkeepers, the suppliers, and all, you know, all the other people who de- depend on that um, you know, economic microclimate, if you like. Uh, it was just too big to fail to suddenly put millions of people on the dole. So I mean, it would have been a, an economic hammer blow yeah. to the entire UK economy. Oh, it would. I mean, I mean, how many? How big was the entire UK workforce at that point? It's in the low tens of millions, isn't it? And if we're talking about a couple of million people, it's a huge yeah. proportion. Yeah. To to go down all at once would have been a disaster. Oh, yeah, and in fact, it would have been a lot of people overseas as well. I mean, yeah. because the BL, I mean, again in nineteen sixty eight, had factories all over the place. I mean, from Chile to New Zealand. I mean, and Africa. I mean, it's just incredible network. Never mind all the sales organisations that would have mm. suddenly uh, gone down. So, um, so what was in it for the government? Well, uh, yeah, not having all that unemployment. And but also the belief that the, this business could still be rescued and competitive, and so they com- at the did, time. Sorry, 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 sorry to interrupt. Did they ever? Did anybody ever consider just breaking it up and selling off the individual components? I mean, presumably there were still brands within there which could have survived uh, on uh, their own. Well, uh, uh, no. Well, no. Nobody was considering that because they'd done the very reverse and were still trying to make the whole amalgam of companies work and what i was what came next at once the government had agreed to fund it was that they commissioned a uh, a report uh produced by a chap called don Ryder, later lord Ryder, who was the head of the national enterprise board which was an a, a quango i don't know if it was a quango but uh, an organization set up by the labor government to try to uh, uh, foster British industry and business, and so in the ma- in a mere fourteen weeks, they came up with a scheme to rescue BL. There was an ex Ford guide part of that team, and um, it, it was going to see what, over one point two billion pounds invested over the next eight years, which back then is a absolutely colossal amount of money. And what they 
envisaged was a uh, well four big organizations Leyland Cars, Leyland Trucks, Leyland International which exported all the products of the other three divisions the final one being Leyland Special Products which covered off things like road rollers and uh, refrigerators and transmissions and who knows what um, but this was the period in which the Leyland Cars organization started to crush the brands and so the Jaguar Browns Lane plant infamously became known as I can't remember the name but it was something like Leyland Cars Plant 9 you know so it was almost Stalinist the removing mm -hmm. of the the branding and the character and the history uh, being purged uh, William Lyons managed to persuade and battle to to try and keep Jaguar protected to some degree from all of this um, and the main thrust was to try to rescue Austin and Morris. So nearly all the money that there was for investment was directed at trying to rescue Austin and Morris as the volume makers. The theory being that if you've got your volume makers in order, then you can concentrate on the premium brands. Now, with hindsight, it's easy to see and to say that actually the premium brands were where the real value lay and they should have concentrated more on those. But, you know, easy with hindsight. Um, especially when you're still basking somewhat in the aftermath of multiple Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo rally wins with the Mini, one of the greatest cars of all time, and the 1100 success and various other things. Um, but that rider report strategy didn't actually last that long I think about three years before it was clearly not working and then they brought in a South African guy called Sir Michael Edwards who uh, w w was a pretty clear thinking and ruthless manager again not perfect but but he really started to get things done and closed factories, including... Uh, the, and so when would this have been? So that was 1978, I think, he was brought in. Um, and, yes, so he closed the MG factory at Abingdon because, well, in his view, it, it, it wasn't efficient enough to survive. And, in fact, eventually, well, uh, uh, a couple of years later, he shut MG altogether... Um, because the exchange rate meant, and the complete, you know, by then the MGB was 18 years old and there was no replacement for it. So, you know, another example of failure to develop product and hold on to a market, you've got the sports car strategy just completely went to pieces because there were, there was no MGB replacement. That was the most popular model in the States. The TR6 was replaced by the TR7, although pop Contrary to popular belief, the TR7 was actually the best-selling TR of all time, despite its weird looks. Um, and I, I, I've driven the TR7, uh, your TR7, as indeed. it turns out. Yes, yes. and it was, uh, it was um, yeah, it, it, it was very different and far, far better than I was imagining it, it was going to be. Yes, it was actually uh, a vastly better car than the TR6. I mean, so it should have been. That was a almost a 
1950s car in late 1960s clothes. But um, anyway, yes. So, but, you know, they sports cars uh, were, were dying over there. Um, so essentially Edwards had to retrench. But the other great thing he had to do more than anything else was try to bring order to industrial relations. And the way he tried to do that, or in fact he was successful, was basically to say to the unions, if you don't accept our proposed new working working practices, on the whole they weren't really unreasonable requests either, um, we will simply not invest in new product. And in the new product in this case was the originally called LC10 and then LM10, the Maestro. So the Maestro became a perpetually stalled major new model program because it, it, it was used as a method of beating the unions, really. And, you know, there were various very significant votes held among the workforce that basically said, if you, you know, do you accept these terms or not? Because if you don't, then you'll be voting for your own redundancy in so many words. And obviously these things went through. But Edwards gradually began to get a grip on industrial relations. There was still a long way to go. But um, but the upshot of that, in the case of the Maestro, which was supposed to be a very big seller, was that it was very late to market. So had it come out when it was supposed to in the late 1970s, it would have only been two or three years behind the Gulf, um, and really on the money in terms of. But its it was what 83, 84 when it came out. 83. In? So it came yes, and so actually it was still competitive, but not competitive enough, and also it was badly made because they hadn't got the money to invest in the robots and modern machinery needed to make a quality car. The Metro was a much better made car than the Maestro because the robot count was much higher. It was an easier car to build correctly. Um, and in the midst of all this, we've got another um, arm of development that would become very important, and that was Honda. So, yeah. And this is another example of, I would argue, very forward-thinking good management in that because the maestro was delayed and there was nothing after the metro going to be nothing for three years on the volume side um, in the late 70s a few people started looking for a manufacturer to collaborate with to get get hold of a car basically to make under license or uh, uh, to give the dealer something new to sell before the maestro arrived and that led to the deal with Honda and the Triumph Acclaim, as it was called, which was a, a version of the Honda Civic called the Honda Ballard. Quite a good car, not brilliant, but okay. When the deal was being developed, because, you, you know, obviously car big car companies like that or any big businesses approach each other very warily and only reveal secrets in an inching fashion so there was talk about a car being built but they early on didn't quite know what it was and when the Honda Ballard was finally revealed to the 
the people negotiating this deal. They'd been expecting a five-door hatchback. What they actually got was a small four-door saloon, which wasn't what they'd wanted, but beggars can't be choosers. And also, Honda didn't have anything else to offer. So instead of being an Austin Morris product, it, they decided it would be a triumph because in some ways it it had quite a lot in common with the Dolomite, which was uh, by then an utterly ancient, though not totally meritless saloon car that they were still making in the, you know, more than 10 years after it had come out. Um, <clears throat> we're going to have to, um, well, we, we're already, <laughs> yeah, it's been yeah. so fascinating and so interesting. We, we've already um, passed our sort of normal um, call-off time. But um, I think, Dan, we're going to need to just sort of rattle through the rest of it, aren't we? Yeah, we do need to. I think we can run over a little bit. I just want to jump in and it sounds to me like from a purely product point of view, the quality of the cars and how innovative they were, how they led the world. BL or British Motor Corporation was at its peak in the 1960s. Do you think that's fair? And did it ever get, come close to climbing back up to those heights from a purely product point of view? Yes, no, very good point. And uh, we also need to talk about quality in terms of reliability as well mm. in a minute because that was an, another crucial factor but the answer is yes they did get close so for example yeah to to the world beating products mm. that were produced in the 60s and the absolute star example is the 1976 rover well it's known at, by its code name sd1 specialist division one it was because it's known because by that name because it was called given the same name as its predecessor rover 3500 so you had to yeah. distinguish it anyway this five-door hatchback there were no hatchbacks uh, apart from the renault 30 in the executive car segment uh, back in 1976 so it's a 1970s porsche panamera it is in a way very much so yes mm. styling and, inspired by the ferrari daytona i correct. believe yeah and i was a in my last year of school when that came out, and but I'd already signed up to be uh, part of British Leyland. I, I mean, it wasn't just my excitement. It was excitement across the country. There was a lot more interest in cars and what Britain produced in, in the country back then. And it, it was so exciting. It, it was far more um, dynamic looking car than anything any other manufacturer including from Germany produced it had a very interesting technical spec and it won the car of the European car of the year award the following year and the waiting lists for it were absolutely immense but typical Leyland the on the day it was launched the Solihull plant was on strike <laughs> and this brings us to the issue of quality Quality and reliability was not great in the 60s and getting worse and worse and worse through the 70s, partly because of the workforce and their lack of care um, and also you, uh, the contracts that the workers were hired under called piecework made it extremely difficult to introduce product changes. So basically development was stifled by labour practices. Um, so there were all kinds of terrible quality problems. I mean, the Rover SD1, I mean, absolutely dreadful doors. You know, you could see daylight between the door and the door closing aperture, uh, rubber. Um, 
you know, sunroofs leaked, electric windows failed, central locking failed. I mean, it was just endless. Uh, the paint plant, uh, they had a new paint plant which sprayed on paint that would come off in sheets, thermoplastic paint. They'd wired the extractor fans in the wrong way around, so instead of extracting polluted air, it was ingesting polluted <laughs> air from the rest of the plant. Um, I mean, it, you know, the list goes on. And so a magnificent design was was spoiled. And in fact, it was built to Austin Morris cost standards as well, uh, which was a terrible mistake. Rovers prior to that had been built to standards uh, rivaling Mercedes-Benz, and they went from one extreme to the other almost with that car. Um, and, the, uh, uh, and in fact, predating it by a year, this may sound ludicrous, but the what was launched as the 1822 series, only called that for nine months, so there's an example of poor management, renamed the Princess, a front-wheel drive wedge-shaped executive car that replaced the failed Austin 1800. The styling by Harris Mann w was really dramatic, and when you think 80s cars, you think wedge shapes, not just from BL, but from many manufacturers, not least, and also from... Giorgiaro, so Ital mm. design, so many wedge-shaped cars. So it was really on the money. It, unlike the the Marina and the Allegro, it actually drove very well. Um, massive waiting lists. Um, and then the lack of engineering development, which was another ongoing BL problem. Not enough development of the product before you launch it. So they were within months, drive shafts were failing and... Sus rear suspension would collapse and um, you know the interest in the car not surprisingly disappeared very rapidly and so what could have been a big hit uh, wasn't um, but yes there those those are two particularly striking examples there were other yeah models. but but they those two examples are from the mid 70s aren't they so quite soon after the heyday of the 60s um, should we, because we are running out of time, should we spool forward to the sort of modern era, by which I yeah. mean 90s, early 2000s? Um, well, yeah, I mean, actually on that and just uh, taking the point that you've been making about, you know, peaks after the 60s. I mean, I got into this business in 1988 and I remember when the sort of the second generation, the proper yes. Rover 200 came along in the early 1990s. That was a wow car. That was a couple. Uh, I, I can remember thinking, "Goodness, finally!" Yes, because the previous one had been rubbish. Yes, um, but this car, particularly with K series engines in it, mm. um, it was a world beater. It really was. I mean, you know, I think it won almost all the group tests we put it up for. Um, and you know, I can remember thinking at the time, you know, if they can continue to maintain this standard, yeah, um, there's a road back for these guys. Exactly. And I went to the launch of that car, and um, I, I mean, I must stress here that even though I'm passionate about BL and, um, you know, all its descendants, uh, I always did my best to be neutral as a journalist and be critical, which I think I was, but and as an aside. But so the private part of me, when I went on that launch, was knocked out by that car not i i mean it wasn't perfect it, it didn't ride particularly well but it was just very clearly 
a properly developed product in, and, and showed every possibility of being a success. And in fact, it was. It didn't just win group tests. It was a big seller. And in fact, uh, um, the 400, which was the booted version of the same car, which in itself was quite successful, for, uh, Ford and Vauxhall tried to do the same thing with the Escort and Astra, bringing us the appalling Belmont. Belmont and the Orion. And the slightly less appalling Orion. And in yeah, the end, only slightly. They had to give up with those two models because they just weren't good enough and merge them into the main models. But the 400 survived in its own right. And I mention mm. this because if you added the sales of the 200 and the 400 together, it meant that Rover Group, was making the best-selling car in the UK. So it actually got back to where it had been mm. in volume yeah. terms or market share terms in the 60s. So, mm. yes, suddenly it's looking like redemption is coming. However, what I subsequently discovered is that while Longbridge was pumping out all these cars, along with the Honda Concerto for Honda, um, you know, it, its volumes were at levels not seen since the 60s, it wasn't making any money because it wasn't efficient enough and because mm. allegedly Honda, Honda's demand, uh, license fee demand for using its design was too high to enable the company to really flourish. Anyway, because they were so dependent on Honda for their next models, the next Rover... 200 and 400 weren't totally suitable for their segments but leaving that aside by the early 90s um it you know some recovery was coming not just in britain but on mainland europe as well so in france and italy and spain in particular these new honda based rovers uh, um were really doing quite well taking market share and the, the company was i think it was getting to the point where is getting back up to selling half a million cars a year again and many of them were being sold in Europe. So it was really quite promising and this was off the back of Honda who had a very foundational importance to the future of Rover but were also hands-off in a way and, and sort of very wary. So they, they didn't want to own it totally um, and who can blame them? But they were doing well out of it because, you know, they were selling so many kits, if you like. Uh, mm. Rover sold many more Honda-based cars than Honda sold Hondas. So, you know, it was good for both companies. Um, and in a way, eventually led to the plant, Honda plant in Swindon developing. That may well not have happened had it not been for the tie-up with Rover. So, so if, if, we're, if, if things are looking quite good in the early 90s, and yet, little more than a decade later, the whole thing collapses. Yes, it, 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 we can be quite quick now with uh, Go on. plunging the knife in here. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the bit everyone's been waiting for. So let's. Yeah. Let's so get stuck basically, in. Um, in the wider automotive world, people are picking up the uh, move towards SUVs among consumers, and mm. you know it's at its beginnings, but. Um, you know, BMW is sensing that uh, it needs to offer SUVs, hence the X5. Um, and in order to try to speed its ability to introduce a, a, a worthy and com 
product in that area, it thinks, well, maybe we need to uh, have some of Land Rover's expertise. And that eventually led to them deciding, let's try to buy Land Rover. And then Bernd Pissetrieder, who was the boss of BMW, thought, well, actually, why don't we buy the whole thing? Be and there were, I guess, I don't know this, uh, all of this for sure, but one reason was, well, it was a sentimental one. Pissetrieder, incredibly, was a sort of second cousin or whatever of Alecus Agonis, who designed the Mini <laughs> in the 1100. So there was wow. a sort of emotional link there. But more than that, they must have looked at Rover's growing small but growing success in Europe and, and, and thought, actually, um, you know, this isn't doing badly. And at the same time as companies thinking we need to make SU more SUVs, there was this view that you needed to offer more brands to cover the whole market. I mean, if you remember... You know, think how Mercedes expanded. At one time, it was just a maker of executive and luxury cars and eventually ended up selling A-classes and still does. And the smart car, BMW thought, well, rather than stretch the BMW brand too far, what we'll do is we'll... Well, they bought Rolls-Royce and they bought Rover um, and Mini. And we can have a... Rather like BL, we can have a portfolio of brands mm. of different flavours that will appeal to lots of different people, not just people who like BMWs. In principle, it sounds great. The problem, and initially, it, I mean, it went incredibly well in as much as, for the first time in its existence, British Leyland and descendant companies actually had proper budgets to develop new cars with. They'd never had that before. They were always developing on a shoestring budget. Apparently the MGF, which admittedly came out under BMW, but was being developed before it, that cost about the same money as BMW would spend on engineering a dashboard. And, <laughs> and I mean, on one level, you could say, well, it shows, you know, it had all kinds of problems. But on the other, how incredible to get out an entire car program mm, for that For a money. dashboard. Yeah. It was actually quite a successful car. Um, so they had money and there were all kinds of bold plans. Obviously, the regeneration of Rover. Uh, Pissage Street, I had a thing about Riley's because he liked pre-war Riley's. So he thought, oh, we'll bring Riley back. I mean, they got as far as developing full-size bucks of a Riley based on a Rover 75. There was a Frog-Eyed Sprite uh, remake. Um I mean, immense plans, and not least, of course, the new Range Rover, which was Wolfgang Reitzler, the engineering chiefs. Uh, he, so he had a sort of emotional link as well, because he remembered seeing the original Range Rover as a, a child or a young man and thinking what a fantastic vehicle it was. And so that L322, the, the first BMW, well, the only BMW era, Range Rover was very much his baby. However, I remember... I remember seeing Reitzler at the launch of that car. This is in 2000? Mm, I think, yeah, or 2001, I think. Yeah. yeah. And he's standing up and said, this car has cost whatever it would have been, a billion pounds. Yeah. A yeah. billion pounds, 23 years ago. Can you imagine anything in that group before that date costing even a tiny fraction of that. And these were sums of money, but it showed in the product, didn't it? I mean, that was an absolutely extraordinarily good car. 
Yeah, I mean, you could argue that that car, if not rescued, then at least, well, yeah, pretty much rescued the Range Rover because the P38, you know, was a very, not without ability, but a very troubled vehicle because it had come from a Rover group that was underfunded and not sufficiently equipped to develop a world-class product. Um, BMW suddenly enabled the group to produce world-class products. And uh, so that that Range Rover was one, but the, the Rover 75 was the first. Um, and it, I would argue that it was a world-class product. Um, but because the scepticism around Rover, particularly in the UK, was so great, we've witnessed so many bright new starts and so on, people couldn't believe that it would be a, a, a good car. And looking back, and this is only my opinion, I sort of sense that the mainstream media, and to some extent the specialist media in some quarters, were reveling in Rover's trouble and BMW's uh, difficulties with it. Uh, you know, it became known as the English patient within BMW because it was sucking up so much money. There were so many management issues because of, you know, bullshit, uh, difficult relations between Germans and Brits and different management styles. And so there was a lot of friction at times. The Mini, it's amazing that the Mini, which in the end launched as a BMW product, uh, uh, appeared at all in a way. I mean, the the birth pains of that project were unbelievable because um, the project was shunted back and forth between Britain and Munich. Um, but anyway, the problem was that within BMW, there were two factions. There were the pro, let's keep Rover and persist with it, and they, we need to get rid of this. And in the end, the Quant family, who owned the majority of BMW, thought, uh, this can't go on. We've got to, we've got to get rid of Rover. Uh, you know, it's 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 killing the business um and and so uh bmw decided they would keep mini because they they had a product on the brink of launch and they would keep land rover having just <laughs> reinvented the range rover and um and they would sell rover off uh, in a fire sale bait, fire sale um knowing really that it was couldn't possibly survive um, and that was in 2000 um, and, a, and a very big contributing factor to their decision or two contributing factors were and this is again external forces beyond Rovers or BMW's control the exchange rate between sterling and would it have been the Deutschmark then or the euro but anyway whatever currency Germany was using was extremely unfavourable for Rover. So virtually everything they exported was sold at a loss because of the exchange rate. So that was bleeding BMW as well. And the other factor, and I'm still residually angry about this now, is that the UK government of the time, uh, Labour, not that it matters who it is, um, uh, under Go uh, with Gordon Brown, Chancellor, I think, um, BMW were about to spend another shed load of money on Longbridge, redeveloping it to, be, to make the Mini. 
And what they wanted from the UK government, I think, was a hundred million, which in car company terms is almost a tokenistic sum. The reason they wanted it was because they wanted the government's commitment to what they were doing and a signal that they were behind them. And Gordon Brown wouldn't do it. And that contributed as well. I mean, in the end, you can list dozens and dozens and dozens of moments when the wrong decision was made or an external event occurred that did damage um, that all contributed. It was a domino effect in a way. But the upshot was that BMW, in secret, arranged to dispose of Rover to a an sort of entrepreneur called uh, Moulton, John Moulton, I think, who was known for buying companies at fire sale prices or and remodeling them dramatically and and often making a success of them. And his plan for Rover was to ditch Rover, keep MG, make it a very small specialist sports car maker, which would have involved the loss of a great many jobs and uh, 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 what would seem to be a massive contracting of ambition, which was when John Towers, the previous boss of Rover just before BMW took it over, he resigned shortly afterwards, got together a consortium and managed to persuade BMW with the help of the UK government to sell the rump to them instead because they were going to keep Rover and not massively reduce the workforce and all the rest of it, which was initially seen as a a victory and in the short term it was but in the middle to long term it was you know uh, I think actually it would have been better if John Moulton had bought the enterprise because I think he would have probably been able to do more with it because the problem was even though BMW basically gifted them the plant all the stock wrote off all its debts so the cost of amortizing the cars the 25 45 75 and mg tf that they were f that they were making were amortized it just wasn't enough and in fact valiant efforts were made by mg rover to try and forge another relationship with a a manufacturer that would enable them to survive um but obviously they failed and you know, it, ultimately, it was thought that a Chinese manufacturer would do it. But I think they probably realised, well, we can get what we want by allowing it to go broke rather than pouring yet more money in and so on and so forth. So on the, um, I think it was the 6th of April, 1980, uh, 2005, uh, one of the big suppliers uh, decided it wasn't going to send any more stuff to Longbridge because it wasn't getting paid. And that triggered the failure of the company. Um, and that's that. that. And that was that. And, um, well, obviously, MG has been yeah. born again, but uh, it, 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 well... Britain's the fastest growing brand. Yeah. <coughs> However, it's not a British brand. No, absolutely um, not. It's, it's the fastest the, growing car brand Chinese, in Britain. Owned by the Chinese state, ultimately. And... Initially, um, they, I think they really did want to try to regenerate Longbridge. And, um, the, you know, I, I uh, yeah, but it, it, 
we can't get into all the detail. Obviously, it didn't work. Um, and what, what I would like to finish with, perhaps, is and it has a personal involvement, is that uh, as it, when it collapsed, there were there were several attempts by various people to try and buy MG Rover and, and restart it. And one of those attempts was uh, being put together by a guy called Martin Leach, who was an ex-Ford guy who'd had had been um, the boss of Ford of Europe um, and was ousted, and in fact, unfairly in his view, and in fact, he won his case against Ford. Anyway, he began to put together um, a rescue package, and I become a personal friend of his by then, and he included what well, he wanted my ear i think more than anything but he was planning to um remake the morris minor as a retro car retro cars were very in vogue then so we had the mustang the mini um, beetle beetle exactly and so his thought was right we won't just try to re use rover and mg we will re rebirth the morris minor uh, with modern technology, which I thought, well, crack it, that's a pretty brilliant idea given the limited resources you've got. And he was within an ace of doing this, um, of buying it from under the noses of Nanjing and was thwarted while he was on the M40 on the way to Longbridge to <laughs> seal, seal the deal. <laughs> wow. Um, it was so disappointing. Blimey. So, yeah. <laughs> goodness me, I think trying to squeeze 50 something years worth of bl bmc mg rover whatever into a podcast yeah there's so much to unpack isn't there it's so complicated um but richard you clearly understand it pretty intuitively um so <laughs> thank you for taking the time to explain what happened to all of us um it just, it, I suppose it just seems like a shame. There were lots of brilliant cars in there, but also many that were under-resourced, underdeveloped, built poorly, lots of industrial issues, lots of mismanagement, but then outside problems as well. It, it just and, feels and, like the whole company and, was up against it that whole time. And also, and so many times where, but for a single decision, but yeah. for this, but for mm. that, the story could have been, it could have, could have been so different could have been so much happier um i have to say that's this is uh, by distance the longest podcast we've ever recorded but i don't regret a second of it because it's been riveting from start to finish and, I, and i'm just sort of left with this sense of how much more we probably could and short, should have talked about and well you're going to come back on anyway because um we're not going to talk about this now at all but um it's fair to say that you have a reasonable accumulation of, 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 of British Leyland product, um, both the cars that you own now and that you've owned in the past. So we're going to come back and do that again. So maybe, I mean, there's clearly a big opportunity to revisit this. Um, so we will do that shortly. Mm. But in the meantime, Richard, thank you so much for coming on. Give us in your time um, the benefit of your extraordinary knowledge um, and telling us the the enigmatic, sad, um, but never less than the fascinating story mm. of, well... BMC, BMLC, Leyland, Austin Rover, MG, what, what do you want to call it? Yeah. Can I just say, uh, I apologise to listeners who may feel that I've missed out important parts of this history because it's just so difficult to cover all of it and underemphasize some bits. And the other thing is, over the decades, that I, I suppose I've been emotionally invested in this company. In the end, I got to wondering 
why does it matter so much? You know, there are perfectly good cars and exciting cars to be had from elsewhere. And in the end, I thought, actually, the loss of it is important because it's the loss of opportunity for people born in this country who and a country in which we have a talent for cars. You know, look at Formula One, look at our indeed road car history. And yet, because of the loss of this company, not total, but almost total loss of this company, we no longer have those opportunities or as many of them for Britons as we used to have. And I think in the end, that's perhaps, in my view, why it matters so much. And um, for me, it was like losing the football team that you've supported all your life or even a friend. <laughs> mm. That's, and I'm well, sure it's the case for many other people who worked for it as well. Yeah, mm. yeah, very well said, very well said, Richard. So we'll leave it there. Um, but thank you for coming on, and let's get you back on soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.